Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. We are in season two. We are in 1913. Uh, we are still making our way. We're early on in the 20th century, 110 years ago. Yes, we're still uh, without sound, or at least talking. That's right. And the movie this episode is Mabel's New Hero. Indeed, this is admittedly probably one of the least iconic movies that we've ever covered on. Let's finally watch this. But we'll talk and get into some of the the main characters or the main players, why I wound up picking it. All right. So anyways, it's 1913, so I don't know what's going on in film history at this time. But Tim, I'm assuming you do. I've done some reading on it. Okay, so tell us, what is going on in 1913? On the old tall river line, on the old tall river line, I fell for... If last time in 1903, we were still in the infancy of the film industry, now we're more the beginning of the adolescence. So, okay, teenagers kind of just stretching, becoming more independent. Becoming a little bit more who they they would become. But a, awkward. A, yes, but awkward. <laughs> yes, very awkward. Very slowly getting into what we know as a film industry today. Let's first start talking about where you go to see your movies. The Nickelodeons had a huge rise in, during 1905 to 1914. Yeah, I can only think of Nick, 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 and Nick, 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 Nick Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon. But yeah, it's not that. <laughs> yeah, yay 90s, 80s, 90s kids. Uh, but no, this is uh, Nickelodeons were so called because when they first started, you paid five cents to go see some films. I think by this time, few of them were still five cents. You were probably getting into 10 cents kind of stuff. But Dimelodeon is not that much fun. I guess, I guess yeah. not. Now, for a time during this growing up period of Nickelodeons, they had a reputation as being for the lower or working classes because they were very affordable, very affordable entertainment. And they may have looked really nice and fancy on the outside, but inside it was usually pretty bare bones. Were they pretty small? They're fairly small, hard wooden chairs, essentially, okay. not like, you know, fancy, cushy stuff, yeah. anything like that. No theater seating. No, no, no theater, no stadium seating. Um, oh, yes. But this is still a change from the fact that these were growing in popularity. It's still a change from when movies were not just the vaudeville sideshow. They're a main attraction at this point as uh, films get longer. And as they get more longer and more complex, there's a growing demand for a higher class movie theater experience. In part because the film business encouraged that demand because they didn't want to just be catering to the working class people. They wanted you, all classes. You want the people who have the money paying for the film. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the first movie palace opened this year in 1913 in February, and more would come throughout the decade. The movie theater being kind of a, a like the really luxurious. If you think of like, have you ever seen like old movies where they had like movie theaters with ushers? Oh yeah, that's the movie palace sort of. That's style. movie. Palace or a style, a really big still thing. one. I'm assuming still just one screen. Probably yes. We, okay. We're not really in the era of multiplexes. That would come way later. Yeah. Feature films are still in the minority, but they are being developed at this time. Things like our movie this time is only 10 minutes, and most of them are still running pretty short. Yes, that's still the majority. Like they would, again, feeding off of its vaudeville roots, it was still kind of common to have this program of like several films, several short films. Okay. But again, there are feature films that are in existence. The first narrative feature films premiered in Australia and Europe in the mid to late 1900s. The first American features premiered in 1912, and there was a handful of them. I think uh, an Oliver Twist adaptation. There was a uh, From the Manger to the Cross. 
Okay. an early one. I think I've heard that, yeah. Um, probably some Shakespeare, if I remember right. Features would become more of the norm by 1915. So which, they're basically taking plays and just... Yeah, some of that. I mean, 1915, I think, is when Birth of a Nation comes out. Okay. The D.W. Griffith film, who is a filmmaker who is filming at this point. But again, shorter stuff. And interesting note there about that these feature films were made in Europe and Australia first. European film companies actually had a higher output than American film companies at this time. America wasn't the premier you like, know, like we film. think about now. Like we think about now, yeah, where Hollywood dominates everything. That's not the case at this time period. In 1910, according to one book I was looking at, the French company Pathé Ferez. I'm probably butchering that name, but anyway, uh, released more films in the U.S. than the American companies combined. Wow. So, yeah, the French cinema was very early in the... Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, yeah, this company, I think is they were the distributor for uh, George Melier. Oh, and movies. he was making films like, like left and right. Like yeah. crazy, yes. Yeah. But that being said, around this time, more film companies are moving to Hollywood because they started mostly on the East Coast. Which, okay, but that's where all the... The, big cities are in the, it's the industrial center yeah. of the United States, probably. But more and more movies are moving out to Los Angeles and California, partially to avoid lawsuits <laughs> by Thomas Edison. He seems to keep coming up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a whole story involving, for one thing, he had a lot of patents on a lot of parts of the filmmaking process. And there was a period of time where he was really competing with a couple other companies that were constantly in litigation. And at some point, they're like, okay, I think it was in 1908, they formed a truce. And they, they formed what was called the Motion Picture Patents Trust, okay, which basically had quite the ogolopoly on everything for a while. And it was an ogolopoly that would eventually be overthrown by an antitrust suit in the mid-1910s, somewhere in the middle of this decade. Okay, But even before that time some of the market pressure there were there were some loopholes that they were overlooking and things that like again some of these filmmakers went all the way to california because edison and his people were based on the east coast you know it's yeah. a lot farther away get away from them and the market demand was greater than what the motion picture patent trust themselves could could control or, control or anything like that that being said i saw at least one historian in my reading and if you want to find out more again check out the american film industry a book edited by tino balio this one essay I read in there was suggesting that the upside of the motion picture patents company is that they did standardize a lot of things. Okay, so then it's easier to make it because all the every is that you're talking equipment or also just how things are done. More how things are done in some ways. Like okay. the uh, I didn't read a lot. Of, I was kind of skimming this, but. I think it really was the Wild West in those days in terms yeah. of like exhibition deals, distribution and all that kind of thing. And it, it really helped like formalize Put this a is system what we would together. do. Put a system together. Because like if you want to make movies under that are licensed under our patents, this is what you need to do. Which um, is nice. Yeah. To have that standardization is helpful yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. And uh, that's not what the company got remembered for. They just got remembered as being these tyrants that were <laughs> holding it, the whole American industry back. So if you want to read into that, more into that, that's beyond the scope of this. The other part of why filmmakers would want to go to California, though, is that it's a very nice climate. There's wide open spaces. You can film all kinds of things in and around the San Bernardino Valley and plenty of sunshine, which light is very important for, mm -hmm. for filmmaking. So that is why that is becoming more of a thing, along with 
movie stars. Ah, movie stars. We still love movie stars. We still love our movie stars. They're not as big. They're not the the main not, box not office anymore. draws. No, the they, they were for to. a while. Yeah, and at this we're time, we talked about that a lot in the mid century, especially, won't we? You could probably talk. I mean, we didn't talk a whole lot about it last season, but I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said. Yeah, there's some people that think that the movie executives were a little hesitant about using some movie stars. There's a little bit of debate about that because, like, on the one hand. They don't want the stars to have a lot of power. Yeah. You, if you heard me talk about before, a lot of the story of uh, Hollywood companies is about who has control mm-hmm. over certain things. That if any movie star gets too big for her britches, that uh, makes it harder to control them. But there's an undeniable factor that people love seeing certain people. Like you get to know a person. Oh, I feel like I know them. I want to yeah. see them in, in no matter what, what, in everything, no matter what role they play. And so that's notable because in this year, on May 1913, Mary Pickford signed a contract with Adolf Zucker's Famous Players Film Company for $500 per week, becoming the company's first superstar. Wow. And again, think about that. $500 a week when going to see a movie is 10 cents. (laughs) That's not too bad. That is not too (laughs) bad. Not too bad at all. But anyway, so some notable films that came out this year in 1913. The top grossing film, we don't have a whole, a big list, but... It seems to be generally agreed that Traffic in Souls was the top grossing at $450,000. It sounded like a whole lot of money back then. Yes, indeed. That was an 88-minute dramatic feature about, well, human trafficking. And- See, that's what fascinated me. I was just looking up. I'm like, I would not have guessed that to be a top grossing film in 1913. Yes. I but mean, it, it's sort of a... I was just looking up, I think we're still in the era of muckraking, that sort of exposure, like showing the underside so we can fix things sort of mentality to it. Do you know anything about the film? I don't know a lot. Like I did look it up and see, okay, is this something that we should have considered for our main feature this time? And I don't think it has a great, it doesn't have like a great... um, Cinematic property. Cinematic property. Yeah, I think now, I think Leonard Leonard Maltin reviewed it on Wikipedia, said it was kind of corny, um, kind of sensationalist kind of stuff. Oh, okay, sensational. So, so there's not, a little bit of that. It's not trying to, like, expose I mean, something necessarily? I, well, I do think there might be a part of that to it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's great art. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, but yeah, it, it, it is interesting. And as an interesting comparison, also this year uh, marked the debut of The Adventures of Kathleen, which is notable for being the second American serial film and the first to feature cliffhanger endings which would become common in serials for the next decade. And we still love cliffhangers. We still love our cliffhangers. But this was like, this was the first in the, I think the more famous film series that came after, like the next year, there'd be like three of them that were kind of in the same cut. The Perils of Pauline, The Hazards of Helen, and The Exploits of Elaine. (laughs) Wow. You can see a pattern here. Yeah, that happens in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about this, if you take these two films together, that these are serial films that are starring women, essentially. Mm -hmm. And they're playing the damsels in distress in a lot of them but sometimes they're they're also really the the main hero they're sometimes rescuing their their guy and stuff well in this movie the female's really the main hero <laughs> that's true and i read somewhere that the movie business really wanted to cater to women for a period of time but again to kind of combat the stigma that the nickelodeons had become such a a rowdy raucous place oh, okay this was like if the movies attract like just your women folk they must be genteel enough that yeah. anyone can go and see them it's funny because the movies still constantly try to combat certain like stereotypes you yeah. know, in certain ways like no this is for everyone you know yeah it is interesting it, it is interesting things don't change yeah <laughs> i mean it is a lot of it is still money driven obviously yep. but 
Sometimes like, good things can come out of that. So what else is going on in uh, movie history at this time? All right. Well, some notable events that Wikipedia pointed out. The first full-length Indian feature, Raha Harisha Chandra. I'm sure I'm not saying that right, <laughs> and then I apologize. Uh, but it premiered this year in, on April 21st. Like you know, we were talking about, this is early Hollywood. Does Bollywood start as early, or does that come much later? That like, is a good question, and I did not dig into that for this. Okay, but that's a good question. Let me see if we can find out real quick. Sounds like it started in 1930s, according to Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay, yeah, it's it's, it's a little earlier. So okay. a little, you're a little later than this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. If we get to an Indian film at some point, I mean, I guess we did cover uh, Life of Pi last uh, season, but that was, I think it was still Hollywood produced. It was mainly Hollywood. That's my memory. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, other things going on this year. Wikipedia notes this as the year that George Melier's career as a director came to an end. Okay. I think is when he ended his contract with Pathé, which is eh, kind of sad to see a generation passing, but a new generation was coming up. This At the end of this year in December, Charlie Chaplin signed a contract with Max Sennett to begin making films at Keystone Studios. Some of those names are very pertinent to today's episode because this was a film directed by Max Sennett. And speaking of Keystone Studios, earlier this year, they signed on Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle who stars in this film, Mabel's new hero. And um, his earlier film that came out this year, A Noise from the Deep, with the same co-star from this movie, Mabel Normand, that contains the first known instance of a pie being thrown on film. (laughs) Uh, The accounts differ, at least on Wikipedia, as to whether Mabel was the one who threw the pie or took the pie. (laughs) Uh, So, and unfortunately, this is not... A Noise from the Deep was not as widely available as this movie, Mabel's mm-hmm. New Hero, so I, I couldn't verify for you one way or the other. It's interesting that people kind of just went by their, you know, went by their name. It's Mabel's New Hero. It's just, yeah, they just are, but, well, they're not name. pretending to be someone. They're just, this is my character. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Which I guess comedians tend to do that more often. Even they, they might have. True. Well, and sometimes they'll play the same character, even if yeah, they have different names. They play the same character. I mean, like when we covered Horse Feathers. Yeah. They had different names in there, but we still just referred to Marsh Brothers as the Marsh yeah, Brothers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it works for comedy. And I, th- I suspect there's also another way to engender that uh, familiarity with each other. Then we fell in with the parson, and he tied us tight as twine. But I wish, oh Lord, I fell overboard on the old Fall River line. Well, that's what's going on in Hollywood, America, etc. So what is this movie, Mabel's New Hero? My guess is most people have not heard of this. No, indeed. But I think it's a still. it was still a fun movie. This is, uh, again, Mabel's New Hero, directed by Max Sennett, stars Mabel Norman, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, and the Keystone Cops. I should note here for reference, apparently Mr. Arbuckle did not particularly enjoy being called Fatty, even though he is a very rotund guy. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't know. Maybe I thought maybe just use it as a selling point. But well, I do think it became kind of his character in the movies but he didn't really like people in real life calling him that Uh, okay so Uh, understandable yeah yeah (laughs) anyway this film debuted on august 28th of 1913 there's a later prince titled fatty and the baiting beauties i'm not really sure why it was renamed at some point i I couldn't really find any information about that maybe there was a period of time when fatty was more known than mabel was yeah that's possible but in any case let's go on to the summary and i'm going to do kind of a thumbprint sketch of this because there's a lot of running around and about yeah, that. there's a lot of just little comedic scenes. Little yeah. comedic moments, but I'll try to kind of give you an actual plot synopsis. In this silent slapstick comedy, Mabel is embarrassed by her clumsy boyfriend, Fatty, who has a tendency to trip and fall a lot. During a trip to the beach, Mabel and several other women are repeatedly harassed by Handsome Harry, <laughs> a devil among women. As a, they can't even spell devil, <laughs> as, but, a, as the intertitle says. Yes. 
until Fatty finally gets into a tussle with him. Following this, Mabel then hops into a hot air balloon basket for some unexplained yeah, it's reason. completely just thrown in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the resentful Harry partially untethers the balloon, sending Mabel flying through the sky and leaving Fatty and the Keystone Cops scrambling to try to rescue her. You may or may not know who the Keystone Cops are, but you've probably seen a variation of them. Mm -hmm. They're silly cops that are constantly falling over themselves. They have ridiculously big dome hats yep. and the kind of floppy uniforms. Yeah, see, I was aware of them. I don't think I'd ever seen anything technically, but they just... You, you recognize you them. You recognize them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. After several failed attempts, Mabel rescues herself by shimmying down the rope. While the cops go chasing after Harry, Mabel tries to fall into Fatty's arms but bounces off his belly, so she settles for a hug instead. Format, of course, is in black and white, and it is silent. I forgot to note the screen ratio, but it is the standard 4x3. The length is around 10 minutes. Again, this is a silent film, but it probably had piano accompaniment. The version of this we watched on YouTube had a uh, piano score by Omar Rasidajic. <laughs> I'll say who he did a fine job. I know he I recognized a couple tunes that were probably near close to the period, mm -hmm. like uh, that beautiful doll and uh, by the beautiful sea. So there's a couple little classic tunes in there. All right. Well, then why do we pick this film, Tim? Because again, I never heard of it, which doesn't mean it's not well known, but. Yeah, and to be honest, I could not find a whole lot of information about this. I honestly probably picked this one, not because it was a big financial success, although I think it was, did pretty well. Mabel and Fatty would wind up doing several pairings. They had, did six in 1913 alone. In the following year, Mabel Norman would collaborate more with Charlie Chaplin, because he mm -hmm. had just started at the same studio, and she actually mentored him. He was brand new to the film industry. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he had done some other, he'd been a comic on stage before this. But she really helped kickstart Charlie Chaplin's career. But then after he left the studio at the end of 1914, she and Fatty would be paired again in at least eight more short films in 1915. So this is a pretty popular pairing. And yes. she had a good decent amount of influence going yes. on. She is probably one of the, I would say, three biggest Hollywood female stars during this period. The first one being Mary Pickford. The other one, um, at least I know she was a big silent film star. I don't remember now. I forgot to check to see if she was starting in the 1910s. That but... lady from Singing in the Rain. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Lillian Gish, who you would know from The Night of the Hunter. Okay. I mean, that's when her she's much older, but yeah. she had a period where she was a popular silent film star. I'm pretty sure she did some films in the late 1910s. But Mabel Norman was right up there with her. So again, between Mabel, Fatty, Keystone Cops, this is a, a very memorable time. And again, memorable in a way that not too many American films from this era, I feel, are. Like when I looked up 1913 films, I was seeing some like there was this French serial film, which I forgot to write down the name of, that came up more often. But this is a, a situation where I feel like the actors are more notable than the film itself. Okay, that makes sense. And um, then, and who else cares? Is there any kind of critical acclaim or talk about this? About this one in particular, I couldn't really find much. So I will note that Charlie Chaplin himself described the Keystone movies this way. He said, I thought they were a crude melange of rough and tumble. However, a pretty dark-haired girl called Mabel Dormand, who was quite charming, weaved in and out of them, justifying their existence. That's a great quote. <laughs> it is, it is. Kind of backhanded compliment. <laughs> All 
All right. Well, then, uh, let's go and see what do we think of um, Mabel's new hero. Tim, did you have any, before you started researching, do you have any knowledge of this movie? This movie in particular, not really. Again, my familiarity was more with Mabel and uh, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. I think I've mentioned before a uh, Legends of Comedy VHS set that uh, was really my first introduction to old school comedy, it was particularly in the 1920s, 30 section. It talked about these two, and they were, they definitely have screen charisma, mm-hmm. I would say. And so I'd always wanted to see more with them, and this was a good opportunity. But this movie in particular, I was not familiar yeah. with. I had not really. I mean, I, I vaguely knew about Keystone Cops. I think I've heard Fatty Arbuckle by kind of pointing him out in a crowd or anything. Sure. So, yeah, this was all new to me. And yeah, in this era of filming, we didn't cover this era last season. No. And I, so I know very, very little about this era of film. And researching this, I felt like I was learning a lot myself. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So let's hear our reactions from when we watched it last week. Okay. Okay, quick reactions to Maple's new hero. Very fun, slapsticky, clowny kind of stuff. All the characters bumbling around, especially the cops. Just silly, slapsticky. I don't have a whole lot to say about this. Yeah, it's legitimately humorous. I guess comedic beats never die. Like, it's the same thing we'll see for the next 110 years in some ways. But yeah, just lots of fun. I don't know where the kind of the doofus guy comedic hero comes from, but at least from this far back. <laughs> uh, also, um, way more talking that you can't hear than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it seems like they were actually were saying things. We just couldn't hear what they were yeah, saying. Yeah, we're not expecting that. Having you know watched Nosferatu and things where they purposely don't do tons of talking. Yeah. So I couldn't tell what exactly was going on at first between the fat guy and the main girl because she seemed kind of not into him or not quite like she wanted him around. But I guess it made sense enough by the end that either they were an item or she finally decided to pay attention to him. Other than that little bit of impreciseness, enough was clear that it was funny. I guess you, of course, exaggerated, but you can't not laugh at a bunch of guys falling all over themselves to some rag piano music. So, Tim, what do you think? It's been a week. What's stuck with you? Well, I think one thing that is, I think would be fun to talk about is just the progression in filmmaking that's on display here from the last episode. It is It is very noticeable. Like, it's, it's much more fluid and they're much more comfortable. The story is much easier to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You feel, you can really feel the energy of all the characters yes. and that the camera's not so far back. They're like, okay, which one of those is which? Like, are those the good guys, the bad guys? And yeah. yeah and the, the narrative chops are much better. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's 110 years old, but it's... It's really easy to watch. Yes, for sure. Again, I think the energy really comes mm-hmm. off the screen pretty well. And there were a couple of camera things that just seemed like, like I don't know, like just seemed like, oh, that was interesting. Like this uh, aerial shot almost, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Just a couple things they're like, oh, they, they weren't bringing attention to themselves, but you could tell they were just filming. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. There's a, an account from the time that said that Maple Norman herself was the one who slid down the rope to okay, come yeah. down. But I really have a hard time believing that because the way it's shot, it seems like it, it's shot in a way for it not to be that. Like yeah. the shots of her in, in the balloon basket are from a low angle. You can't, I mean, if you're up in the air, there's not going to be a whole lot around you. 
but like you could easily set, have the camera on the ground and her near on the ground, just kind of looking around yeah. frantically. And whoever is sliding down the rope is far enough away that you really can't see who it is. And then would you really have your one of your biggest stars do something so dangerous? I, yeah. I, I don't know. But that's debatable. Regardless, it sells the idea. It does. It does. And the whole movie just sells. And I think the other thing that I still I really appreciate is just it's very funny. And it just has so many kind of tropish comedy things. That just, <laughs> but it's always interesting for me, like. Are they vaudeville things that came forward? Are they just things that made up then? Is this stuff that's been around since the beginning of time? It just it's just mm. interesting. You have, like I said in my initial, the kind of the doofus boyfriend. Um, you have the I mean, basically Dick Dastardly twirling <laughs> the mustache. Uh-huh. Which I'm sure they're playing off these old tropes when they do those newer things. The melodrama kind the of The melodrama. Stuff. Yeah. 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 But it's it's just a lot of fun. It is. And again, the, the slapstick is certainly a highlight here. Yeah, it is. Like Janelle said, the guy's falling all over themselves. Fatty can't seem to stay on his feet very well. No. It's very funny. Apparently, he was very, given his size, he was surprisingly athletic and agile. Mm-hmm. Like, he could actually do pirouettes and stuff. And, and, you know, to do all the pratfalls that you're doing safely shows a certain amount of body physical awareness. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, they play up his appearance, but you could tell that he's very good at what he does he's not Mm -hmm. yeah and the keystone cops they're not in this one as much as i would like to see there's not a car chase which i know they're especially known for yeah and apparently it was extremely dangerous to do some with it i'm sure like these some of these shots you had were like they're almost getting hit by cars they really were that close to them (laughs) i wouldn't be at all surprised i know in my legends of comedy thing that apparently they got paid a certain amount the per feet of cliff they fell down or so all right then (laughs) Anyways, and and it did, though I mean the comment, it does just strike me as really fun and it helps with the energy that they're they're just gabbing all the time. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. this constant this gesticulating, you know, and you can't hear a word of it, but it sells that just that bottled energy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just fully invested in this whole thing. Yeah. We've used the phrase live action cartoon before. And yeah. It kind of feels like that at times. And it's very fun that way. I mean, it, and it works in a way that really would only work as a silent film mm-hmm. and in this old timey style. Well, or the Marx brothers. Well, okay. Or the Marx. We call them live action cartoons too. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's true. But yeah, this is a little different. Again, just because of the way that this the, is even more physical than they are. Yes. Yes. And they're moving in very pantomime kinds yeah. of ways. And yeah. yeah. But yeah, I don't know that we have a whole lot of detail. Again, it's a 10-minute short film of silliness. So do you have questions for me? This yeah, time? I was coming up with a serious question is a little rough. but <laughs> I'm not sure that I do. But I'll ask this. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but I think it's also somewhat serious. We've talked about all the shenanigans, slapsticky. What do you think is the most essential comedic beat for something like this? Hmm. Because there's a lot of them going on here. What do you think is like, if you had to pare it down, like this is the thing that makes, you know, will last forever. I feel like if there is a way that's, and this is hard, I don't know exactly how this happens. It's some sort of indefinable magic, but I feel like you have to, the audience has to love the character to enjoy seeing them hurt themselves. Okay. <laughs> if okay. That, if that makes a weird amount of sense, like you care. Yeah. You care. I like, you, the, if you don't care, then you're like, yes. <laughs> right. But I mean, there's just something cute about, I mean, the reason Mabel Norman was such a big success is that she had this kind of 
waifish quality to her, at least in the, her acting style. I'm sure in, in real life, she was very savvy. I mean, again, she was the one who tutored Charlie Chaplin yeah. into helping him become Charlie Chaplin. She was a very smart lady, but there was a delight that she exuded mm-hmm. in some of her scenes. And again, early on, there is some interactions between Mabel and her gal friends and Fatty that's not exactly clear what's going on right away. But as she... The longer it goes on, the more you see her interact with Fatty. And Fatty himself is a bumbling delight himself. He is. I mean, he gets his swimsuit on. He's just so proud of himself looking in the mirror. And <laughs> just, yeah, he's fun. Yeah. So I feel like the heart is an important thing for, uh, I mean, that's, that may sound strange when it comes to comedy. It's just like, oh, it's just silliness. But I feel like if the, the heart of it is not there, there's no joy to it. Okay. Now, I was expecting, but I like that answer a lot. All right. So do you have a question for me you don't have to be serious you can go straight to silly yeah is that sort of film it is and this might be breaking the rules a little oh okay but i have a question for you that's not actually related to the movie but something else we talked about today okay so if you were to make a serial film okay starring let's say your wife what would you call it oh oh okay um because hmm. I was for me, I was thinking like the jump scares of Janelle. Or, yeah, but N is an interesting. Um, yeah, I was having Natasha. Let's see. I don't know what you come do um, with the Natasha. the needless nettles of no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I say this also knowing that Natasha doesn't really listen to our podcast, so you're probably <laughs> I can say whatever I want. <laughs> um, the gnashing gnats of uh, uh, I don't know <laughs> the gnashing gnats of gnat. Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> You do really boring cliffhangers, like normal nights of Natasha. It's like <laughs> a very peaceful. Where will, will she finish her book? Uh, <laughs> they're not quite that mad at this stage. <laughs> no. So yeah. yeah, I don't. I actually don't have a good answer. My as soon as we start recording, I'll think of a, a genius one. <laughs> but I have nothing at the moment. Like so, I we're trying to do like night terrors or something like that. Oh, the night terrors. The night of terrors Natasha. of Natasha. Maybe yeah. that would work. You could. That could work. Okay. I mean. If I'm no, doing... more noir, but we can go for it. Yeah, yeah. The Night Terrors and Natasha. I, I like it. Or Natasha's Night Terrors. If you want to modernize it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like all those other ones, it was like the blank of blank. So Nautical Night Terrors. Um, <laughs> Is she an underwater adventurer? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Your task, your Hollywood executive, to remake this as a full-length modern film. What do you do? Oh, goodness. You know, because that's what we do. We remake old stuff and new stuff. Well, I mean, part of the irony of this movie, and one thing is, who exactly is Mabel's new hero? Mabel. Yeah. <laughs> like, she saves herself from the hot air balloon. Fatty's no help at all. No, he's really not. Um, so, I mean... I or who like, do you cast? Or, I don't know. You can do whatever, how, take this whatever angle you want. Hmm. For some reason, Margot Robbie popped in my head. Okay. I, I haven't seen a thing with her, but I know she's had a lot of success as Harley Quinn. Okay. okay. And and I'm very curious about this new Barbie movie that is coming out this summer okay. as we so record. So she, she's the new Mabel. Okay. Eh, maybe. Uh, I don't know if she has the innocence that Mabel exuded. Uh, she certainly, I think she can be that kind of, she definitely has some comic energy from what I, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Who's and Handsome Harry? <laughs> <laughs> you could cast almost any guy as Handsome Harry. I think the interesting one to be who would you cast as uh, Mr. Arbuckle? Because mm-hmm. like apparently at one time Chris Farley was thinking about playing Arbuckle in a movie. Oh, he would have been really good at that. He, he really yeah. would have. He had great comedic. Yeah, you need energy. someone like it'd be fun to have someone big like that. First person I can think of right now is Jack Black. Oh, he, he'd probably be pretty great at that, actually, too. He, he probably would. Of course, he'd have to lose his beard, which would be a tragedy at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you make it an hour and a half, though? That I don't know. I guess you'd, you'd have to have more... You really have to play up the romantic 
problems between the two of them. Why is she embarrassed to have, is she embarrassed because he's fat to have her as a boyfriend or is it because he's really clumsy? What's causing the friction there? That'd okay. Be, that'd be something you'd explore. Okay. Interesting. I, you know what? I could actually see the movie I'd go and watch. You know, they did it right. Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly see it. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you, how you do play the womanizer. Like what, what's the modern version of that? That is it. I guess we didn't really mention that. I mean that the Harry the Harry is that basically. The, he, I mean, yeah. I mean, he he almost goes into the ladies' dressing room. Yeah. He's following them so closely. It's, pretty, it's kind of yeah. I mean, it's borderline scandalous, like the way like he's watching Mabel dress and yeah. seeing her silhouette and stuff. Yeah, we didn't really touch on that a lot, but well, Max Sennett was also known for, uh, along with it being known as a director of comedy, he also had these bathing beauties. Like basically, oh, okay. women's in swimsuits was at all his other like headline attraction. <laughs> oh, okay. So you know, oh, so Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't changed much, and we're a little bit before we haven't gotten to the Hayes Code yet or any of that stuff. Well, there is a review board that starts what would later become the National Board of Review, but again, that was all voluntary, and again, not Hayes Code kind of stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap this up. So. Is it worth it? Do you like this movie? I certainly enjoyed it. I don't know that I would recommend it for my first uh, Mabel Norman or Fatty Arbuckle film. I mean, I guess it was new for you, it was, it, and you still enjoyed I, it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's, since it's short, as a taste of just that sort of Nickelodeon era, mm-hmm. it was completely worth it. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. it was just a lot of fun. Now, I'm sure there's probably ones that you could say, oh, this is a better Keystone Cops, or this is better, whatever, but I don't know any different, so sure. I enjoyed it. Sure, yeah. So, yeah, it's not a bad introduction at all. I would still might suggest maybe look, hunt down like a documentary if you're really interested in these characters, because that would give you a, a more curated flavor of what mm-hmm. they could do. Yeah. Um, but this is certainly enjoyable and is widely available on YouTube and the Internet Archive, which is one reason why we picked it. So if you're interested, no reason why not to check it out. All right, and that is our 1913 film. Next time, we are in 1923 with a film that's, I'm assuming, going to be quite different than this one. (laughs) Yes, markedly different. Which is? The Ten Commandments. No, not that one. (laughs) (laughs) This is The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille. Oh, that one. But not with Charlton Heston. (laughs) Uh, Yes, he actually made a Ten Commandments movie twice, and this is the earlier silent film version, so it should be quite interesting. Meanwhile, uh, subscribe to us on various podcatchers. Check us out at our website, derailedtrainsofthought.com. Yeah. I think that's all we got. It's all right. That's all we've got. <laughs> Bringing uh, until- in our catchphrase from Derailed Trains of Thought. Until next time, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.